Hello, and thank you for listening to the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal podcast. The Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal is co-sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators and the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. My name is Eva Thenheiser, and today I'm talking with Megan Staples from the University of Connecticut and Jillian Cavana from the University of Hartford. We will be discussing the article, Student Argumentation Works Sample Sorting Task and Teachers' Evaluations of Arguments which has been published in the February 2021 issue of the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal. We will begin by summarizing the main points of the article and discuss in more the lessons they shared, their successes and challenges, and how this work relates to their other work. Megan and Jillian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. So let's just jump in. Give us a brief summary of what the article is about, including the results. Sure. Uh, This is Megan. I can start us off. So this article is about a tool that we developed to help better understand teachers' views of students' mathematical arguments and to help us see change over time, if we could notice some changes in their views over time. And it really came out of a, a math science partnership at the state level that we had. And we wanted to really work on, at the time, you know, obviously Common Core had come in and we were thinking about how do we support teachers in the state? And there was a great need for looking at argumentation. The Math Science Partnership Grant was a requirement was to really work on like our content knowledge, but we wanted to add that in. And we found there was really no tools at the time to help us think about, okay, what are we seeing for changes over time? How do we even know if the PD is effective? How do we know where teachers are at? So that was kind of the impetus for trying to develop this tool. And that's what we try to write about in this article. So in the article, we examine the tool and we take on those questions of, does this tool, is it useful for helping us see, gain some insight into teachers' views of argumentation? And does it help us see some change over time? And we find yes for both and we can elaborate and clarify. That's awesome. It's good when you find yes for the questions you're asking. (laughs) All right. So who should read this article? So this is Jillian. And I think that we think that any teacher educator with an interest in argumentation, perhaps mathematical argumentation specifically, or even more generally, the idea of evaluating students' communications of ideas, we think that they could find some things that of interest in this work. So this might be also a coaches or district leaders who are interested in teacher learning around these ideas, or anyone designing tools where they want to learn about teachers' views of argumentation and evaluating student work. So I know you did this in a secondary context, but would you think that it is useful to read across all grades? Thanks for that question. We actually had both elementary and secondary teachers in the professional development that we designed this tool for. And understanding sort of the mathematics that would be applicable and interesting to all the teachers was one of the things that we struggled with a bit in deciding what work samples to use. So we intentionally used work from fourth grade with the thought that the arguments were complex enough that they would still be interesting for secondary teachers, but the mathematics wasn't so complicated that elementary teachers could also find something valuable there. Okay, so let's unpack a little bit more the problem that Megan alluded to in the beginning. What is the specific problem of practice that your article is trying to address? The biggest framing is how do we support 
teacher educators and teachers in advancing more mathematical argumentation in their classrooms. So given that we know that that's a powerful practice, it supports content learning, it supports students' agency and access to math. How is it that we do that work? And then when you put that in a project that's trying to deliberately design learning opportunities for teachers along these lines, the question turns into how do we know? So how is it that we can understand their views and where we're at and whether the PD had some sort of impact? And along with that, one of the things that Jill and I talked a lot about is how do we do this in ways that are very relevant for classroom practice? So if we're thinking about looking at student work, which is part of what our tool is, that's a more authentic way to go about supporting teachers and evaluating teachers and thinking about the professional development work than if we have something that's a little more distant from practice. So I guess just to summarize, the biggest space is how do we advance argumentation in mathematics classrooms? And then the particular problem we were kind of wrapping our heads around here is really the how do we know and how do we design effective PD for these ends? Okay, I'm going to try to summarize. So I feel like I heard three things. And I don't know if I can remember all three, but let me try. So one is that like argumentation is an important tool to advance all kinds of things in the math classroom. Mm -hmm. And so you're focusing on understanding whether a professional development that is specifically designed to do that actually did that. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? So it's like the, is the innovation a tool that helps you assess whether change happened? Yes, that's what we needed to design, some kind of tool that would allow us to make a claim about that, that our professional learning opportunities likely made an impact on teachers' views of argumentation and what they might do in the classroom. So that's kind of cool along multiple levels, right? On the one hand, it's, it's cool to learn about argumentation, but it's also cool because we struggle sometimes to know whether what we did in professional development actually worked. And this can give you some insight. All right. So let's um, situate this a little bit in what's out there in the field. How did you draw on prior work? So I can set a very general ground level for this, and then I'll let Megan fill in some of the details. So I think broadly, we situated it within literature on proof, argumentation, and justification. So we looked across all three of those And then we were... Can I interrupt you for one second? Of course. Tell me how those are different or what is different about proof, justification, and argumentation? I think that there's lots of really interesting differences, but I know that Megan has lots to say about this. I knew you were going to toss it to me. I was. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. So we have an hour and a half, right, Eva? Eva? Nope. Um, Nope. No. (laughs) We're doing this briefly. Yeah. So... Okay, so 5,000 things to say about this. I think I'm going to limit myself to the field hasn't decided yet. I have a personal view of those things that is evolving. And for me, I would say that justification is all of the things that we try to support in a mathematics classroom, whether it's a choice about a method we used or whether it's justifying a conjecture even. Not that the conjecture is true, but why the conjecture even came into being, as well as other things like justifying your answer and why your answer is true. Whereas when I personally moved to argumentation, and there's some 
it's not that I'm way out there on a limb. This is in the space of what we're all mucking around with. With argumentation, I think about that specifically as an argument being made for a claim that has a truth value, either something that can be shown to be true or shown not to be true. Whereas I think in math classrooms, we also have a whole host of things that we might want students to justify, but they're not things that necessarily have a truth claim. Like why did you pick elimination over a different method, right? For Mm -hmm. solving a system. And then proof I think of as a, it also is dealing with things that have claims that have truth values. And beyond that, it's also a a more specific genre approaches and writings where you're very explicit about the prior results that you're building on and the axiomatic axiomatic system you're working in, et cetera. So that's how I differentiate it. Kristen Lessig and I have a piece in FLM that, that lays that out a little more clearly, perhaps. And I will definitely add, though, that there's, uh, reiterate, I guess, that there's no firm agreement, I think, in the field. So I think it's very important that we all sort of articulate what we're using at the time, but it's something that it is evolving over time. And I, you know, the field, I think, is making progress on some of those ideas. And to thanks kind of for the follow nod. Up. Sorry, so I was just going to say thanks for the nod to that and for uh, linking to that paper. And I was just going to go back to Jillian so you can complete oh, yeah. the answer. <laughs> Well, the answer is still going to go back to Megan, but I would just say that we recognize that all three of these fields are ideas of proof, argumentation, justification. They're intertwined. There's a lot of overlapping space there. Megan highlighted the idea of the truth of the claim as being in argumentation. And since we were looking to support teachers' understandings of mathematical arguments where there is the claim students are making is either true or false, we did locate this primarily in argumentation. So we connected across all these literatures. And then we really wanted to understand how the work that teachers are doing in classrooms is tied into this. And so we recognize that much of the prior research has focused on teachers' sort of ability to prove or ability to justify or the things that they are seeing in the the work that they are doing as sort of authentic math doers, which is different than the work they would do as a classroom teacher. And so the job of being a teacher who is helping students to make sense of arguments requires skills that are slightly different than the work of doing the math yourself. And so we tried to draw a little bit on both of those things. Megan, do you want to elaborate on that any further? I thought that that laid it out well. So, I mean, if we want to just sort of ground it in a specific, like the shift that Jill was just talking about, whereas instead of looking at how teachers recognize a valid argument, but we're more looking at teachers' views of the argumentation. So like the Healy and Hoyles article from 2000, which asked questions about, you know, which of these is, uh, would receive the highest marks, right? Like ultimately we're in classroom practice and, and people are making value judgments about the quality of the arguments that go beyond just whether they're, just whether they're valid or not because we're trying to notice different features of students' work and trying to promote and support their learning, both by giving feedback on what they're doing well, as well as areas for improvement. So now to come to the meat of this paper and podcast, can you describe the innovation and try to keep in mind that the listener may not have read your article yet. The tool that we developed, the main part of it is it's a task and student work samples that go along with it. So we selected a task that was ultimately, I think, from the Shell Center, and there was a lot of student work samples to go along with it. And we culled that down to seven student work samples. And 
the heart of the tool is asking teachers to evaluate or decide whether they thought the argument presented in the student's work was a high quality argument, an adequate argument, or a low quality argument. And we had sort of some questions in a protocol that, that went along with that as well. But that's the main crux of it, trying to tease that out and eventually sort of elicit their, their rationales for it. An important piece, perhaps, of the tool is that we tried to deliberately vary or select student work samples that were uh, that varied along certain dimensions that we perhaps knew or had a strong hunch for the literature would be important. So, for example, we had different representations in the student work samples, and they all were work samples where the students, claim the, their answer was correct. So the claim was that, yes, it's true for this work sample. And so we didn't want to have that be something that the teachers were focused on, but the changes in the representation was one thing we varied. And then also the explicitness of the warrants was another area that we varied. And then the third area that varied was kind of the precision, the level of precision in the student work sample. And I'm just going to jump in and try to describe the task quick. So this is called the leapfrog task. And you have different frogs that are jumping across three lily pads and two have a fraction on them and one doesn't. And they're supposed to all add up to one. Is that correct? Yeah, so that comes from the Shell Center. And the first one has the three. The the second question, which is where our student work comes from, has three different fractions. It happened to be, in this case, one-fourth, one-fifth, and ten-twentieths. And the frog has successfully made his journey if the sum of those fractions is equal to one. And then, you know, it doesn't make it if is anything other than one. And so then teachers were asked to show how you, or well, students in this case, were asked to show how they knew that the frog had made it or not. So the question you're centering on is more or less, is one-fourth plus one-fifth plus ten-twentieth equal to one, yes or no, and why? Yeah, I think that that summarizes it. Okay. And then um, I think, Megan, you were saying you had different student work and they differed across three categories. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Can you remind us of the three categories? Sure. So one was mode of representation. Was it symbolic, visual, narrative? The second one was how explicit, you know, were the warrants explicit or implicit, right? What are the warrants kind of behind the scenes or explicitly noted by the student? And then the third feature was the level of precision or imprecision of the student work sample. So did it contain small errors? But as noted, all of them implied or explicitly stated that, yes, the frog makes it to the center lily pad. Within these work samples, is there some that you would consider these are amazing or are they all like, how did you select those in addition to those features? So I can start and then Megan, feel free to fill in. A couple of them are what I might describe as sort of traditionally expected approaches. So uh, if you imagine working with fractions and teachers noted this when they were talking about them, they'll do things like convert to have equivalent denominators and then they'll find the sum and then compare that. And so they're just written out in numeric answers. And so that kind of argument we anticipate to be pretty consistent in especially fourth grade classrooms when they're working on that. So there's a few that included those. 
there's at least one that included sort of a numeric approach, but then didn't make it all the way with the explicitness of the warrants. So the argument is weaker, even though the the technicalities of the process is pretty accurate. And then other ones that we selected on purpose were much more visual approaches. You know, someone drew a bar diagram and was just comparing with no words at all. Another one do, drew a few different um, sort of circle representations of the fraction. And so in terms of the mode of communication we were looking at, we got some that we thought might make a range of different students that you would see in a regular classroom, but also happen to highlight these mathematical differences that we know come out in the nature of the argument, whether it's been well-supported or not. It sounded like you based the selection on your experience of what happens in real classrooms. There's a degree of that for sure. And then I'd say also a little bit like in the literature. So for example, the Healy and Hoyles that I mentioned earlier, they suggest that their findings seem to suggest that teachers evaluated or valued arguments differently depending on the mode um, they were expressed with sort of symbolic being valued the highest. So I think we were exploring a little bit what we saw in the literature as well. I wanted to add okay. one more thing to what to what Jill said, because this became a, a kind of a major issue for us. So this is, I guess, getting a little bit into the sausage, but we started with more than seven work samples just to, you know, as we were working with the teachers and, and we were using this as a, a learning opportunity as well, but we ultimately had to wrestle with, are we going to decide that there's a right answer to each of these, that this is a high quality argument and this one isn't, or are we going to you know, figure out that there's a consensus across some sort of expert group. And then we're going to say that, yes, this has a right answer, or are we going to do something a little different? And um, I think, you know, we certainly didn't feel right or confident that we should be deciding, especially the quality of the argument. And then we worked at the first phase of the project. We actually had three rounds of participants. And in the first round, we worked with a smaller group of coaches and math leaders and even within that group, we could not reach 100% consensus on what we wanted to say the quality of the argument was. It was very, very interesting. We had long discussions, and that just really proved impossible. And different people valued different things for different reasons, sometimes bringing in their grade level perspective, sometimes bringing in you know, just different perspectives on what's important. And so ultimately, what we did is we shifted a little bit our gears and said, what we're looking for is to see if as a community, we can come to better consensus about the quality of these arguments. And so that's one of the things that we end up talking about in the article is that initially when we did this as sort of a pre-assessment where teachers just brought in whatever understanding of argumentation they brought with them from their past experiences, we were all over the map. I mean, not ridiculously so, but there was a wide range. And then we did see that by the end of the professional learning opportunities and our work together as a community, that there was more consensus on what a high quality argument was, which work samples represented low quality and sort of more adequate quality. So that was just an interesting piece of what was there. And I think kind of speaks to the broader field. And then ultimately, you know, our commitment that this is about classroom practice and teachers' views and how do we make sense of argumentation from a teacher's perspective as opposed to sort of a more external perspective. This actually leads us really nicely into the next question, which is, can you remind us of what the research questions were that you asked? And um, let's just lump it together. What evidence you collected to answer them and then what you found? 
Okay, so this is a lot. I'll start with the research questions. So we were looking at two research questions particularly, and this ties back to what Megan described earlier. The first question was, does this tool provide information about changes in teachers' evaluation in relation to students' responses on an argumentation task? And so to say that differently, we really wanted to know, do we get information from this tool? Can it help us know what's going on with teachers' knowledge about argumentation? And then our second research question was to kind of unpack that a bit. And it was more qualitative in nature, but what information does the tool provide that could potentially help us inform professional learning opportunities? So those were our questions. And then the data, I think I'll, I'll share what the data was, and then I'll let Megan can take the next round for some of the follow-up. But we worked with participants in a professional learning program. And as I mentioned before, they were both elementary and secondary teachers. And we provided this tool to them prior to, so a pre-survey of their knowledge prior to the professional development. And then they experienced five modules, which we designed focused on mathematical argumentation and engaged in a lot of different practice-based activities. We actually have a lot of resources from that professional development available at uh, our website, which is bridges.education.uconn.edu. And so these work examples, along with lots of others, are available at that website, along with our professional development models. So the pre-sample, pre-survey data was collected, then they engaged in the professional learning. And then again, we had them do the very same argument sorting regarding high quality arguments, adequate and low quality arguments, same sample, same task, everything. And we collected the results of that. And so that formed the uh, data that we examined for this article. And I just want to pipe in quick that you, the link to the website is in the article as are the tasks at the, in the appendix. Yes. So then I think that takes us to what did we find? Is that, did I cover everything in the preamble? I think that's good. Let's hear what you found. What we found is that on our pre-evaluation, we ended up setting a, setting a benchmark at 75% agreement as if there's more agreement than 75% of the participants that was considered consensus. So, or enough consensus. And so initially we found only two of the seven work samples. Was there a level of consensus on those for the pre-assessment? And then when we did the post after the five modules, we found that for five of the seven work samples, there was consensus on those. So that led us to, you know, that's our support for our claim that, yes, this is a tool that can help us see change over time or see differences in the teachers thinking over time, collectively speaking. And then we looked a little more carefully at the kind of information based on the patterns of responses that we saw and the changes we saw. We used that to claim that it did provide us with some useful information that could be used to design PD or give us feedback on the work that we had done in our professional development tasks. So I have two follow-up questions here. One is, what is that useful information? And two, can you talk a little bit about the tasks that either you found like switched from not consensus to consensus or that you didn't end up getting, just to give us a little bit of an image of what happened to get people to have consensus or not? 
Sure. I'm going to start with one of the things that seemed a little bit, it was fairly consensus building at the beginning and then at the end is that there were a couple of the work samples where there were some small errors. Particularly, there was this one sample where the student tries to draw some fraction bar models and it's an inaccurate drawing. The approach to the argument, their reasoning for what is happening is fairly sound. Like there's a lot of quality thinking there, but it seemed that across all of our teachers, this was just a, you could not get over the students' errors and the errors just took away from their, whether or not it was a quality argument. So that one was consistently rated low quality Despite the fact that the argument, the reasoning and the warrants provided by the student were probably not so bad, but everybody thought that, you know, this was just inaccurate to such a degree that the precision was an overriding factor. So that was one of the ones that was consistent. There was another one that precision seemed to be something that consistently showed up in teachers' evaluations towards arguments that were just seen as slightly lower quality. Do you want to talk about any of the ones we saw change in, Megan? Sure, I can do that. And then I'll first, though, build on what you just said. So that actually gave us information about our professional development work, because we realized, you know, you, you only get your results after, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we realized yeah. <laughs> we, we didn't talk enough about that, that we didn't talk enough about situations where an argument had an inaccuracy or an imprecision, but it wasn't foundational to the the reasoning of the argument, but it certainly played a role. And so, you know, we going back now would explicitly address that or bring in student work samples where some of the differences were only these smaller errors and talk with teachers about that because our concern kind of became that that was just focused on maybe over-focused, right? Just like sometimes with uh, writing, teachers focus too much on spelling or grammar or something along those lines. So we wanted to work with teachers more on putting that into a broader context about mathematical work So that was an implication to address your second question. To pick up on what Jill just said about the ones that changed, I thought one of the ones that changed that was very interesting or was one where it used the standard algorithm and it had no warrants explicitly stated. It was all implicit. And over time, teachers sort of became more more skeptical of that. They still thought it was a solid argument, but changed it from the most highly rated argument and the pre to it wasn't, it was no longer the most highly rated argument. So we thought that that was useful shift because it meant that we had addressed the idea of warrants and what are some of the warrants behind algorithms? What allows somebody to use an algorithm and do you need to justify the use of the the algorithm or not? So that was just something that was interesting to see their treatment of that. And then conversely, we found that when teachers initially looked at some of the arguments that used visuals and diagrams, those were not as highly valued and did not receive the higher levels. And in the post, it seemed that there was a little bit of a shift where those were now seen as stronger arguments perhaps than they were initially. So as I was listening, I was thinking that your contribution is a specific task, but also a kind of task, right? Because one could see replicating this with a different mathematical context or a different idea. For sure. We were thinking that even just the template for the tool itself, the idea of using a protocol modeled after a professional learning community and sort of substitute in the task of your choice with maybe different work samples that vary along 
different dimensions for whatever the need might be, we offer that as a possibility. We would love to know more when people begin exploring whether it's using the task that we happen to analyze or another task. We did intentionally design this around a task that doesn't focus on generalization, which is pretty common in the literature around proof in particular. And so this was argumentation in support of a particular answer. And so, you know, that's also open within the sort of the template of the tool itself. And I'll just build on that a little bit to say that on the website, we do actually have other sets of work samples that we pulled together that can be used for this tool. And we definitely want to acknowledge that we expect that different things would be found with different work samples, right? So depending on the particular features of those work samples, it's going to raise up different issues and give you different insights and promote different levels of consensus or changes. And then similarly, just depending on the group of teachers you work with, they're going to bring in something different and have you know different um, policies and standards and curricular materials. So we also expect that it might show different aspects of teachers thinking and teacher learning just depending on their prior experiences as well. Yeah, as I'm listening, I'm trying to, in my head, rework a task that I have, Megan, that you might remember. That's a hexagon task that oh, I yes. use students. <laughs> I use a lot of student work, but I haven't done it this way. So this is kind of a cool way to potentially implement that. All right, let's close out. Uh, we went a little off script. So let's close out by just, I want to ask you, is there anything else you would like to add to what we had talked about I think that's good. I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. So super exciting study. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And one of the things I appreciate a lot about this journal is that it really allows you to just take something and implement it. And so I'm excited to try this out. I'm also excited about the choice of task that you decided to present in the article because I do think, as you said, this covers an interest level at all levels. So it's not just elementary or middle or high school. It's, it's going to be something everybody can wrap their head around. So thank you so much. Thank you thank very you. much. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. For further information on this topic, you can find the article on the Mathematics Teacher Educator website. This has been your host, Ava Thanheiser. Thank you for listening and goodbye.